0: Boy, what a joy to be here with all of you, and a little math challenge, I guess, with some of the dates. Uh, My wife has actually been singing at Grace Community for coming up on 40 years. She started in kindergarten, and it's uh, been really neat to see her sing there all these years. Uh, We are just so thrilled to be here and so excited. You all are an answer to prayer. Did you know that? You're an answer to hundreds and hundreds of people, from praying and praying and praying, for this church as it got started, and so excited to see Bruce and Thomas and Libby and Carol and all the things that they're doing and the fruit of that in your lives, and so it's a joy to be here to celebrate this one-year anniversary. I would just invite you to stand with me. I want to pray before we look into the Word of God, and this will be a little bit different sermon than most of the time for me. We're usually very verse-by-verse, verse, and I, I wanted to give you a broad overview of the New Testament and the Apostle Paul and challenge you to be the kind of church that God wants this church to be. So Father, we come before you so grateful that you are here, that you're moving in a mighty way, that you have blessed, you've provided, you've provided this location to meet, you provided the financial resources, those that are serving. We thank you for that. And we'd ask you, God, that you would pour out your blessing on this church. You would cause it to grow and to multiply, that more churches would be planted here and worldwide, and that Multitudes would come to saving faith in our Lord Jesus as we sang we know he's coming back soon We want to be faithful to the end We want him to smile when he comes back to see us Carrying out the mandate he left for us So Lord use this time to encourage us strengthen us challenge us move us Father if there's anybody here that don't yet know you they don't know you through your son Jesus I pray today would be that day for those of us that do know you, help us to make you known more effectively than ever before. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated if you would. And I believe an outline was printed for you. And if you would like to use that, that might be helpful to keep you on track with where we are. Uh, today you celebrate one year of public meetings as a local church. And and I, I can see that from the four people we sent up here, you've grown quite a bit. Isn't that amazing? I mean, look around the room and see the folks that God brought together here, and, and He's forming you into a church, and it's exciting to see many of you have come from other churches, some from churches where you've been hurt in the past, some from churches where you were ministered to deeply and you learned great things. Some of you are here healing and being equipped. Others of you are here ready to go for it and serve, and so I rejoice in that. For all of you that God brought from other churches, He's forming this church to impact this region for many, many years to come. But I'm curious, how many of you have come to Christ through the ministry of this church specifically in the last year? Can I see hands of any who have specifically come to Saving Faith this year? So one hand over there. Praise the Lord. That's exciting. And I bring that up for this very reason. We celebrate even one coming to faith in Christ, don't we? I mean, Luke chapter 15, I love that chapter, and it tells about how the angels of heaven, every time, how many sinners repent? One. Every time one sinner repents, all heaven rejoices. By the way, I'm not as dignified as Thomas. You can talk back to me, okay? So, and besides that, I get to leave after I'm done. So you can just say whatever you want. But uh, I want you to understand that I believe that every soul is precious, but I also believe because of that, what a church needs to be about is making disciples, And that's not just taking believers and helping them grow. That's reaching the lost, bringing them into an intimate relationship with Christ and his church, equipping them so they can go out and multiply. Every believer ought to be a reproducing disciple maker. Do you agree with that? That is the message of the New Testament. That was the mandate of our Lord and Savior. He said it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. He did not want us to miss that point. Five times he gave a commission to all of his followers that we would be engaged in the work of making disciples. So the goal of this church plant was not simply to gather you folks together, although we need that. We need believers who really are serious about impacting the world for Christ to form a church that is going to be doing that all the days of its life. But saying that, we must be engaged with reaching the lost. And what I have found in my years of ministry, I've been the senior pastor at our church for 28 years. I've been in various ministries now for 40 years hard to say that number without just wanting to shed a tear. I just, how old I am. I look in the mirror and I go, who is that guy? Right? He used to look like this. It was so much better then. But anyway, many pastors have given up on what I believe is a biblical approach to church. See, a lot of pastors have gotten frustrated that the believers in the church will not engage in making disciples. And what a lot of churches have done is they've turned the church into an outreach event so the pastor can reach the lost because the believers won't. I I don't believe that's true. I believe that believers can be motivated, equipped, trained, and deployed to go reach lost people with the gospel. Do you believe that? I really believe that with all my heart, and I'm never going to give up on that. And I believe that way too many pastors are giving up, which is why they're following certain models of entertainment focus rather than true worshipers who want to grow, that not just a song you sing, but your heart shouts out everything she just said. I'd rather have Jesus, and I'd rather make him known than anything in the world. That's the heartbeat of a church. Frankly, it's missing in most churches. Way back when, Charles Spurgeon, concerned about this, think about way back when he was a pastor. So many pastors were giving up on training the members to become soul winners, and he wrote this. I put this on your outline. Contemplate at the outset the possibility of having a church of soul winners. Do not succumb to the usual idea that we can only gather a few useful workers and that the rest of our community must inevitably be a dead weight. It may possibly be, may happen, but do not set out with that notion or it will be verified. The usual need not be the universal. Better things are possible than anything yet attained. Set your aim high and spare no effort to reach it. Labor to gather a church alive for Jesus. Every member energetic to the full and the whole in incessant activity for the salvation of men. To this end, there must be the best of preaching to feed the host into strength, continual prayer to bring down the power from on high and the most heroic example on your part to fire their zeal. That's what he wrote to pastors. Do you think that message is important still today? This is critical. So critical that we get this message back from our dear brother, Charles Spurgeon. Well, is that the experience of most churches today? No. In fact, statistics tell us the average church in America, it takes a 100 church members, one full-time pastor, and a $100,000 to reach one person per year. Is that good? Are we supposed to be fruitful and multiply? Are we supposed to go out and make disciples? This is a concern to me. And so today, many pastors that I have talked to, pastors of very large churches, have given up on the model that I believe we can see in the Bible clearly today. See, I believe lost people are going to hell. With all my heart, I believe that. And it motivates me I believe that the visible local church is God's ordained means of reaching the lost. I believe that every member of the body of Christ is uniquely gifted, and we, as a body, work together to reach a lost world. I believe that this can help other churches. If you become a church where everyone is engaged in making disciples, you're growing, you're being discipled, you're discipling others, you're reaching the lost. If that's the kind of church you are, it will motivate you, excite you, it'll, it'll keep you going for the rest of your life, and. You you will not only build a great church here, you'll start impacting other churches in this area. They will become healthier. They will start to do the same thing. And this whole region could be reached for Christ. And it won't stop there. Because by God's grace, many of you came from Simi Valley up here, right? And from other parts of the country and around the world. And some of you are going to keep going. And you're going to go to other places. Wouldn't it be great to be sent out by a church that's serious about making disciples? So you could go do the same thing wherever else you go. This is God's plan. And see, I have an observation, though. See, I believe there's two kinds of Christians. You still with me? I believe there's Eeyore Christians and there's Tigger Christians. You know what I'm talking about, right? How many of you like Winnie the Pooh? My favorite character is Tigger. See, there's the Eeyore Christian like, oh, well, it'll never work, right? You met that kind of person? They don't jump out of bed. They crawl out of bed. Oh, I got to get up, and you know, I got to read my Bible. There's that kind of Christian. Does that have a great impact on the world, right? Your face looks like the advertisement for the book of Lamentations. This is not good. <laughs> this is not healthy. Then there's the Tigger Christian. You know the wonderful thing about Tigger. Tigger's a wonderful thing. And you are just excited. You can't wait for every day. Every opportunity before you, every trial, is just another obstacle to jump over for the glory of God. You're embracing life. You're celebrating. You're having a great old time. And what did Tigger say? The most wonderful thing about Tigger's is, I'm the only one. That should not be. See, the Apostle Paul was a Tigger Christian. Would you agree with me? Was he on fire? I mean, if he came in here, would he allow the status quo to maintain or would you guys just, you'd either run to him or run away from him, right? This guy was on fire. He was a radical. He was a fork in the road. When you met him, you made a choice one way or the other. That's the kind of Christian he was. And I want you to see some things about him because Paul, unlike most, sustained a passion for Jesus Christ all of his life until he died. And that passion hasn't stopped. He's still worshiping his Savior. And in the book of Acts, I want you to look there just briefly. We're going to bounce around. I'm going to give you an overview of the whole New Testament. In the book of Acts, we find a surprising ending. In Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31, at the end of this great book, Luke writes this, referring to Paul in prison, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered, Period is that a weird ending? I mean, if you were reading a book like this, you would think it started out talking about all of the believers in Jerusalem, and then it started talking about Peter and his ministry, and then the whole last two-thirds of the book is about Paul and his ministry, and it ends with nothing about what happens next to Paul. You know why? The point wasn't Paul. The point's the gospel of Jesus and the gospel was unhindered. Paul was in jail. The gospel was not. Paul was stopped for a moment. The church was thriving. And that's what he wanted us to be left with. See, Paul, Luke wrote this book to one single man. He wrote Luke and Acts to one guy named Theophilus. Name means lover of God. He writes this one guy to convince him of the gospel. If you really are convinced of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you believe in the book of Luke that he really did die on the cross, rise from the dead, he ascended to heaven, he is God in human flesh, the Savior of all mankind, Theophilus, it's going to change your life. I want you to know this for sure. No doubt, no question. I want you on fire for Jesus. The book of Acts then, what was it that the church was supposed to do after Jesus left? And the book of Acts is that outline. We're supposed to reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the, what part of the world? The uttermost parts, the remotest part, the far end, every last bit of it. And so the book of Acts is all about that. And when it ends, it's not about Paul. It's not about Peter. It's not about the apostles. It's about Jesus. It's all about him. Nothing else matters. Having the world come to him is what it's all about. And that's what Paul was passionate about. And I want to share with you today just two simple thoughts. One, passion, and number two, perseverance. Are those critical things? I'm telling you, I am so grieved. Almost every week I hear about another high-level ministry person who's out of ministry because they lost their passion for Jesus. Their passion became themselves. They fall into immorality, and they don't persevere to the end. We need more people like Paul. Would you agree with me on that? You can answer me. It's okay. Yes? Okay, good. The passion of the Apostle Paul. Passion, a feeling of intense enthusiasm towards or compelling desire for someone or something. Another definition, a strong and barely controllable emotion. Passion overwhelms you, it drives you, it motivates you, it compels you. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf was one of the founders of the Moravian Brethren, a tremendous group of people a few hundred years ago. He said this about Jesus Christ, I have but one passion, it is he, it is he alone. See, if that's your life, nothing else matters. So, Paul, I believe, one of the most passionate believers in all human history. And I want to show you that in three stages of his life. So look on your outline, and I want you to see three different stages of his life where his passion didn't just remain, it grew. Paul was passionate about Jesus before he went to prison. Before he went to prison, he comes to faith in Christ. He gets trained by the Lord himself out in the desert. He starts growing. He gets accepted by the apostles. They send him out. He starts preaching the gospel. He's going around. As he's traveling, he then writes back to the people, and then and, and he writes to the Romans. Now, he's never been to Rome yet, and he writes them. He wrote this three years before he got there. In the book of Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There's a lot of things I could be about, but God pulled me out of all of that and gave me a commitment to the gospel. That's what I'm all about. Romans 1 8 through 17, he says, I am eager to minister to you. I am under obligation to reach the world. And this great statement, verse 16, I am not what of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed. Now, Paul had been through all kinds of stuff. He'd been threatened. He'd been maligned. He'd been lied about. He'd been persecuted. He says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. I will live and die for this gospel. In chapter 9, he was so passionate to see Israelites saved, his Jewish brethren. He was so desirous to see them saved. He says, I would even be willing if it was possible. It's not possible, but my heart is so passionate. I would be willing to go to hell if it would save the Jewish people. Is that passion? I'll be honest with you. I've studied hell. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. And I'm not even convinced in my own heart right now I'd be willing to go there for someone else. Paul says, I would. Passion. Commitment. Chapter 15, he says, I'm so burdened to preach the gospel. I want to go to some place where Jesus has never been preached before. I don't want to just go build a bunch of Christians around. I want to go reach lost people. Chapter 15, he then says, I want to go to to the Romans and then I want to go to a new territory in Spain. Paul is driven, he's motivated. To the Corinthians, he writes, in chapter 2, he says, I don't want to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the one thing I want to know. Do you know that? Do you know Jesus died for you? Do you know that he rose from the dead? Has it changed your life? Paul says, that's the one main thing I want to know. You can accuse me of anything else, but that's what I live for. Chapter 4, I want to be a faithful steward of the gospel. Let every man be found faithful, every steward. God entrusted the gospel to me. I want to be faithful with it. Chapter 9, he says, I'm compelled to preach the gospel of Christ. Something inside of me is driving me. If I stop talking, something just, and I can't, I can never stop telling people about Jesus. This is his heart. In chapter 15, he then says, By God's grace, I have done more than all the other apostles put together. He's not lying. This is inspiration of the Spirit of God. He says, I have been so driven. I have just been working day and night, giving myself to this. And I have just devoted my life to reaching people. And it wasn't me that did it. It was God's grace in me, motivating me, driving me, compelling me. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, the love of Christ compels us. And that's an interesting word. Because it can mean compel or constrain, this Greek word. So imagine if you had a hose and you just turn on the faucet, the, the water comes out, right? And the water's coming out and it's coming out at a certain level of force. What happens if you put a nozzle on there? Does the nozzle constrain the water? Yes, until what? Until you open. Then what it, what's it do? That water's under pressure and it shoots out further than ever would before. He said, that's what the love of Christ does to me. That's what the love of Christ does. Hudson Taylor was the director of the China Inland Mission. He would interview candidates for the mission field, and he would always ask them, "What's motivating you for service? Why do you want to go to be a foreign missionary?" One would say, "I want to be I want to because Christ commanded us to go." Another one said, "I want to go because millions are perishing." Hudson Taylor said, "This these are great motives." but they'll fail you in times of testing, trials, tribulation, and possible death. There's but one that will sustain you in trial and testing, namely the love of Christ. Are you motivated by the love of Christ today? A friend of mine had the privilege of meeting with a guy named John G. Mitchell. He was one of the professors at Multnomah School of the Bible in Portland for decades. John Mitchell was born and raised in Canada. He would walk the fields, the plains of Canada, and of course, you know they have those long, long, long days way north up there, and so it might be late till two, three, late till three or four in the morning. He would walk the plains and read the Bible out loud for hours. He memorized the entire Bible, whole Bible. A friend of mine had dinner with him one night. He said, "Dr. Mitchell, you've been at this for decades." what's the one thing you think is missing in the church today? Tears ran down his face. He said, people just don't love Jesus anymore. What a sad statement. Do you love Jesus today? Tell me truthfully, do you love Jesus is he your life? Do you love him so much? Are, are you glad you know him? Do you want to make him known? See, Hudson Taylor and others were saying, that's the thing that will keep you going when well, nothing else will. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ in 1 Corinthians 11:1. Where might that lead us, Paul? Jesus said, well, I guarantee that's going to lead you into persecution. I guarantee you the world's going to hate you. I guarantee you're going to have troubles and strife and strain. This is not going to be an easy road. You're not going to be liked by a lot of people, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. There's nothing in life worth it more than this. And that's the way Paul lived before he went in prison, which is why he went to prison, right? He writes things like, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everybody's favorite idea, right? You woke up this morning going, I can't wait to be persecuted today. Is that right? You're not answering me, is it? No? No? Is that right? So, Paul goes to prison. He's passionate before he goes in prison. Guess what? He's passionate in prison. While he's in prison, he's same as passion he always had. During this time, the first imprisonment, he had Timothy with him. He had John, Mark, Luke, Aristarchus, Epaphras, Justus, Demas. He met Philemon's runaway slave Onesimus. Epaphroditus brought him a gift from the Philippian church. He's in this jail. We just ended the book of Acts. He's in this Roman prison for a couple of years. It's really like a house arrest. People can come and go. He just can't go. He's got soldiers there. Everything seems to be going well. He writes four epistles. He writes Ephesians. What was he concerned about? If I never get out of here alive, what's my concern? I want the church to be united. I want all of you to understand that in eternity past, God called you, and he brought you together in a body, and he's equipping you, and he wants all of you to work together to go out and represent Jesus to a lost world. And you've got to be unified in that effort. You've got to resolve issues. You've got to resolve conflicts. You've got to be one. He writes all about that. In Philippians, he says, I want you to be unified and have supernatural joy by having the mind of Christ. So he writes to the believers in Philippi with that. To the church in Colossae, he writes and he says, I you need to understand the preeminence and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You need to know how awesome he is, the great I am, the God who is, the, the creator of the universe. You need to know that everything is for him. Everything is about him, in him all thing hold together. You need to unite in him. Don't trust in religion. Don't trust in man. Trust in Jesus Christ for everything in your life. Come together as a church and represent Jesus to the world. He writes to Philemon and he says, hey man, there's this guy that I met in prison. He's your runaway slave and I led him to faith in Christ. He's a changed man and he's coming back. I'm telling him to come back. I don't want him to come back. This guy's useful to me. This guy is a blessing in my life and my ministry, but I'm sending him back because he wronged you and I'm asking you, I'm not commanding you, I'm asking you, would you forgive him? Would you act like a Christian here? Don't treat him like a slave, treat him like a brother. Forgive him, restore him, and then maybe consider sending him back to me because I need him. Wow, Paul is saying, hey, church, I'm in prison, but you need to be the church. And this guy named Tychicus is his mailman. He delivers all these letters. And then Paul didn't just write about being passionate for Christ. He was passionate himself. We just read those two verses in Acts 28. What was Paul doing every single day in that prison? He's teaching the word. He's unhindered. He, people are coming and going. He's teaching the word. Unfortunately, some soldiers would have to be chained to him. <laughs> Could you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul? What do you think you'd hear about all day long? I mean, seriously. Seriously. You think about the topics we have, oh, the Dodgers lost to the Rockies. Some of you might be Rockies fans, you're too close there. But anyway, that's another story. I pray for you. But anyhow, so here he is, he's in prison, he's talking about Jesus. He can then later write, and he can tell the Philippian church, he says, hey, by the way, some of you are concerned about me? Don't be concerned about me because the gospel is spreading. It's going everywhere. In fact, some inside of Caesar's very household are being converted because he would lead a primary soldier to Christ and that guy would go into the household of Caesar and he would share the gospel and Caesar's own family members are getting saved and Paul is saying, hey, don't you worry about me. God's sovereign a 100% of the time. He has me here for a reason. Does he have you where you are for a reason? In the job you're in, in the school you're in, in the neighborhood you're in, amen? Why? He wants you to represent Jesus. He wants people to come to himself. And so Paul keeps writing about this. He was unhindered and he was going for it. Unhindered. And nobody could run into Paul without being changed. So was Paul passionate before he went to prison? Yes. Was Paul passionate while he was in prison? Well, I believe what Acts leaves off, you could write Acts 29. And if you were to piece together Acts 29, some theologians, some would say that maybe Paul never got out of prison. I don't believe that's true. I believe he got out, and Paul was passionate for Jesus after he got out again. And that's what I want to show you just briefly. He got out. How do I know that? He says in Philippians 1.19 and 25 that he expected to be released in chapter 2, verse 24, he said the same thing. To Philemon in verse 22, he said, I'm going to need some lodging because I'm going to get out of here soon. Paul fully expected to get out. When the pastoral epistles included uh, references to places not mentioned in Acts, he said that he uh, had traveled to Ephesus and Macedonia. Then he went to Nicopolis, Titus 3.12. He went to Troas, Second Timothy 4.13. None of those places are ever mentioned in the book of Acts. Most commentators say that he went to Spain when he got out of prison. He longed to go there. He left Titus in Crete, Titus 1.5. He left Trophimus sick in Miletus, 2 Timothy 4. He left Timothy in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1.3. He planned to meet helpers in Nicopolis, Titus 3.12. You understand what I'm saying? Did Paul get out of prison? I believe he did. And as he went out of prison, already been threatened, almost killed once, now he's out and he's traveling around doing the same thing he did before. While he's traveling, he writes the pastoral epistles. He writes First Timothy, and he writes Titus. In Timothy, he writes a leadership manual for the church. He says, Timothy, I've left you there in Ephesus, and what I want you to do is have this church be the pillar in support of the truth, and this is the way it should behave, and this is what the people should do, and this is what you should do, and you've got to fight against false teaching. You've got to train up a church where they know what they believe and why they believe it. You've got to get this church so growing and so healthy that they can refute false doctrine, and you need to appoint godly leaders, Timothy, so they can shepherd the flock among them and raise 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 them up to be godly people. Because in Colossians, he said earlier, my goal is not to get bottoms in the chairs. That's not the goal of the church. If a pastor has that as his primary goal, there's something wrong with that man. Paul says, my my manifest goal, the thing I'm motivated by, the thing I work day and night for, is to present every single person mature in Christ. And I'm not going to stop till everybody is. Let me ask you a question. Is every single person in this church as mature as the Apostle Paul? Or is the work done? we got a lot of work to do, don't we? We personally have to grow, and we got to help each other grow. We want to see Jesus and go, Lord, we ran the race. We as a church, that's why you have growth groups. That's why you have preaching. That's why you go verse by verse through the Bible. You want to be fed. You want to grow. You want to be on fire. You don't want to go to some church where they just go, you are just the best thing since sliced bread. And I can't tell you how great it is that you're with us here because God is so shocked that you're on his team. Man, he's blown away. No, 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 no. no. This thing's about Jesus. Can I get an amen yet? Amen. Is this about Jesus? Did you gather today because of Jesus? Are you here to celebrate Jesus? That's what we're here for. This is what it's all about. We're passionate about him. And so Paul did this. He writes to Titus all those things. So he's passionate about Jesus and reaching people for him. He's passionate about the church because the church is God's method of reaching the world. And so Paul, passion before, passion in, passion out. Now let me talk about perseverance. The perseverance of the Apostle Paul. Acts concludes... Paul's passionate. He's been faithful. People have been ministering to him. That time in that prison, it was great. Brothers and sisters are coming, bringing him money, bringing him food, caring for him, studying teaching. Some of them are going out from there, sharing the very things he taught them. It's fantastic. He's released. He travels, like I just explained. But in July... 64 A.D., something terrible happened in Rome. Remember what happened in Rome? The city burned down. And Nero blamed it on Christians. Not Jews, Christians, which they thought was a subsect of the Jews. He blames it on the Christians. At this time, Paul is probably in Spain. He's traveling and preaching the gospel and planting churches. He returns to Rome in 66 A.D. And there's people who hate him. He wrote about them in Philippians 1. He said, these are people that have a self-ego. See, it's about them. They're glad I'm in jail because they can make a name for themselves now. It's never about the man. It's never about the pastor. It's always about the Savior. So Paul is back in Rome, and these people hate him. And they make it known he's there and he's arrested. While he's there, he writes his last book, 2 Timothy he tells us some of the details of what happened prior to his martyrdom. In chapter 1, verse 15, if you want to look there just real quickly, 2 Timothy, this is Paul's final, final letter. It's his swan song. This is his heart. What he wants to pass on. What he wants to leave for his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, 15, from the Roman prison. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Is that different than Acts 28? Acts 28, they're coming and going. They're bringing him food. They're bringing him money. They're coming there. They're alongside him. They're celebrating the fact we're Paul's friend. He's the great apostle. We're glad to be Paul's buddy. Second imprisonment, they won't come near him. He's alone. He's alone. He's in a dark, cold dungeon, treated like a criminal. In chapter 4 verse 16, look what he says. This is tough stuff, folks. This is not, this is not feel-good Christianity right here. 2 Timothy 4 16, Paul, riding from a prison days before he's going to get his head severed. At my first defense, no one supported me but all deserted me after all i've done after 30 plus years of faithful ministry the people who said my were my friends have abandoned me i'm alone you feel that i'm alone They've left me. What's he say next? May it not be counted against them. Wow. What a heart. 2 Timothy 4, 6. He says this. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved us appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke. I'm all alone. Crushens Titus and Tychicus all had important tasks they're faithful but they're gone they're off doing something In second Timothy 1 he says the family of Onesiphorus they ministered to my needs so they should be remembered And in chapter 4 verse 9 and verse 21 in verse 21 he says Timothy make every effort to come before winter The Groves and Heronshaws moved up here two years ago, right before. What, what did you call that? Snowmageddon. Snowmageddon. Paul writes to Timothy, the man he'd trained for 20 years Timothy, I'm all alone. Would you please come before winter and bring a coat? Chuck Swindoll wrote a book, Paul, a man of grace and grit. He wrote this. Travelers to Rome today usually miss that most important site. He's going to talk about the prison where Paul was. It's called the Mamertine Prison. We're leading a trip to Israel, Jordan, and Italy at the end of this year. And we're going to go to this site. I've been there once before. Swindoll writes, it's inevitably missed because it's not listed at any of the tourist brochures. There's no original works of art that hang in the gallery at that unattractive place. No sculptured statues attract a sophisticated crowd. In fact, nothing about the old dungeon is beautiful. The place is a dark, dingy hole, not fit for any human to inhabit. Not only is it unattractive, the pungent odors of sweat and dried blood, common to such chambers of torture, offend unsuspecting visitors. If the stones blackened by age could talk, what dreadful tales they could tell. The few tourists who descend into that dreary space crouch through narrow passages. They sense what it was like for anyone to spend even a few days in the dank, gloomy chamber of horrors, then called the Mamertine prison. In that lonely dungeon, the prisoner named Paul spent his last hours, during which he wrote some of the tenderest words ever penned to a fledgling young ministerial apprentice just beginning to hit his stride. Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy while alone in the shadows of that damp and dirty cell, Hans Fenzel, in his fine book, Empowered Leaders, skillfully describes the place where Paul spent his final days. Any visitor who, to Rome, learns immediately that St. Peter's Church is at the center of the city's attractions, like magnets, the Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica, the beautiful museums that surround it draw millions to the ancient city each year. I visited Vatican Square, toured St. Peter's Cathedral, spent half a day in the Vatican Museum. I was especially impressed by the works of Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. However... What inspired me most, what impressed me the most, happened after I left those great buildings and that rich history. As impressive as they are, there was something more special in store. On an obscure side street a few kilometers from the Vatican, there's a small building thought to house the prison cell where Paul spent his final days. Whether it is actually the place or not is debatable, We climbed down into this cramped hole beneath the ground and spent about a half hour in the dark cell. It was cold, damp, and musty. A small grate in the ceiling allowed a little daylight to shine through. Historians agree that Paul probably lost his life around 67 AD when Nero ruled. As I sat down on the cold stone floor, I imagined what it must have been like for Paul in those days. If this wasn't the exact room, it had to be just like it. What a way to spend your final weeks. We stood in the cell and talked, drinking in the story that the stones could tell if they spoke. We noticed only a few visitors climbed down into the cell with us in stark contrast to the Vatican Museum not far away. I thought to myself, here's where the man who wrote the greatest portion of the New Testament spent his last days, the greatest missionary and church planner." Of the first century died here Wouldn't more people Want to feel what it was like for him Obviously the answer is no Most people visiting Rome today do not list Paul's cell as one of Their top ten tourist fights But for me it was number one Number one Did Paul let that cell get him down No <laughs> Not at all Why not He was passionate about Jesus. In Philippians 1, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Do you believe that? It's gain. Guys, don't worry about me. If I die in this first imprisonment, it's okay, because I'm ready to go. I want to see Jesus. And then in Philippians 3, even more difficult. This is one I struggle with. He says, I want to know Christ, and the fellowship of His suffering. I want that, Paul says. Wow. I don't just want to know Christ. I want to know. I want to feel even a teeny bit of what he went through for me. I'm willing. I stand willing. And and in fact, I'll die for him. Wow. Paul was passionate. In Romans 8, he says, Dear believers in Rome, I haven't met you yet, but the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Someday we're going to be in heaven. Things that I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man. And we're going to see it, and we're going to experience it for all eternity. Don't worry about temporary suffering. It's so short, you'll hardly remember it. Wow. And in 2 Timothy 4, he says, hey... The reward's coming. You know what the reward was to him? I'm going to see Jesus. That's the passion of my life. The person I love the most. Paul's second letter is dungeon talk. He's in this little cell under the ground, dark and dingy. He's endured countless beatings, four shipwrecks, stonings, torture. Now he's crashing in a tiny dungeon. And never once, mark this. Never once does he complain. Not once. Wow. What a man. He acknowledges his suffering. There's no denial. But after thirty years of faithfulness, his life's gonna end with horrific suffering. And you know what's going through his mind? Just like What happened to my Savior? And it's okay with me. I'll gladly follow him anywhere. He was passionate. He persevered. So he writes a second letter to Timothy, hands it to Luke. It makes its way to Ephesus. He addressed it affectionately to Timothy, my beloved son. Hey, Timothy, it's dad. Timothy reads it. I have a vivid imagination. Any of you like that? I get emotional because everything I talk about, I'm seeing it at the same time. I mean, I'm looking, I see you too, but it's like I, I'm seeing these things happening and I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning Timothy reading this letter from his spiritual father i'm imagining timothy choking back his tears when paul says i'm being poured out as a drink offering the time of my departure has come you know in acts chapter 20 paul talked to the ephesian elders he says i might not ever see you again and they they knelt down and wept can you imagine what timothy's feeling How overwhelmed he must have felt when he reads, make every effort to come before winter. How challenged he must feel when Paul's about to die and he says, there's only three things I want. I want a cloak. I want the parchments, the scriptures. And I want you to bring me a friend. Chapter 1, he says, Timothy, live courageously. Go for it, man. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. It's worth it. Chapter 2, he says, be faithful, persevere, be strong in grace, be faithful to entrust to faithful men what I've given to you so they can teach others who will teach others who will teach others because I'm about to be gone and I need to know what I've invested in you is not going to stop there. It's going to spread to the ends of the earth. Timothy, you got to do that you got to be brave as a soldier and disciplined like an athlete and hardworking like a farmer. You've got to be diligent as a workman and you've got to be as gentle as a servant. Chapter 3, he says, Timothy, get ready for tough times because they're coming. Because the world doesn't love God anymore. They love themselves. They don't want to hear the word of God. They want their ears tickled. Timothy, you just got to get tough. you got to be strong. you got to persevere, my friend. And in chapter 4, he says, be devoted to proclaim the word all the way to the finish line. Never stop proclaiming the truth. And we don't know if Timothy made it before Paul died. But Timothy was forever marked. Bear with me, if you would, as I read a story that was told by another. Describing what happened to Paul next. His earthly end came swiftly, abruptly. Alone and without fear, Paul stared directly into the eyes of the execution squad. Several held rods with which they would beat him. One held the sharp axe with which he would sever his head. Few words were spoken. They marched him through the heavy gate and beyond the stone wall that surrounded Rome, past the pyramid of Cestius, which still stands today, and onto the Ostian way toward the sea. Crowds journeying toward Rome knew by the rods and the axe that an execution would soon transpire. They had seen such sights before. They passed it off with a shrug. It happened yesterday. It'll happen again tomorrow. The manacled prisoner walking stiffly ragged and filthy from the dungeon was not ashamed or degraded. The squad of grim-faced soldiers never noticed as they frowned and stared ahead. But there was a faint smile on their prisoner's face. He was en route to a triumph, the crowning day of his reward. For to him to live was Christ, to die gain. No axe across the back of his neck would rob him of his triumphant destiny. In fact, it would initiate it. They marched Paul on to a little pine wood in a glade known as the Tre Fontaine. At that place today, there's an abbey in Paul's honor. He's believed to have been put overnight in a tiny cell. At first light, the soldiers took him to a stump-like pillar. He stood there, the executioner, axe in hand. They stripped Paul, tied him, kneeling upright to the low pillar which exposed his back and neck. They beat him with rods for the last time. He groaned and bled from his nose and mouth, and then without a hint of hesitation... They swung the blade. In that brutal moment, silently and invisibly, the soul of the great apostle Paul was immediately set free. His spirit soared into the heavens, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I got to tell you, I wouldn't mind going that way. I'd rather go that way then go in a moment, consumed with myself. Does this make sense to you? How about us? Are we convinced? Will we follow Paul like he followed Christ? Will we join with him in suffering for the sake of the gospel? Will we be faithful to the end, even if everyone else quits? And will we then get that reward when our Lord and Savior says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master? Is that worth it all? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Let me close with one more illustration. An old missionary couple had been working in Africa it was retirement time. They had served faithfully. No great fanfare. Not a lot of fruit to show for it, really. They're on a ship from Africa coming back to the United States since the early 1900s. Just happened to be the same ship that President Teddy Roosevelt was on. He had been to Africa on one of his hunting expeditions. And the whole trip back on the boat, everybody was talking to him and wanted to get together with him and get him to write his signature on something. And nobody noticed this missionary couple. They'd given 40 years of their life. In the jungles of Africa. Nobody cared. All of a sudden the husband said to his wife, something's wrong. Why should he get all the attention? Why is he getting all the credit? What has he done? Here we are coming back from serving the Lord faithfully and nobody cares. They all want to talk to him and his wife says, dear, you shouldn't feel that way. I can't help it. It's not right. The ship docked in New York, and as you would expect, there's a band there playing, and the mayor's there, and the president walks off, and they're all taking pictures and shaking his hands. The newspapers are writing articles, and the man's even more frustrated. That night, his spirit broke. He said to his wife, I can't take this. God is not treating us fairly. His wife said, Honey, go to the bedroom and talk to the Lord about it. A short time later, he came out, and his face is different. His wife said, what happened? He says, the Lord settled it with me. He said, I I told him how bitter I was that the president received this tremendous homecoming when no one met us as we returned. And when I finished talking, it was as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but you're not home yet. The rewards up there, the fanfares up there. Nothing this world has to offer can compare. Do you agree with that? See, if you believe that, you'll be passionate for Jesus. You'll be passionate for others to come to know Jesus. You'll persevere in this no matter what. See, Paul was a Tigger Christian. Would you join with me and make sure he's not the only one? Amen? Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for blessing this church. It's obvious you've brought people here who know you and love you. You've given them a fantastic group of a pastoral team, husband and wife that uh, love you, two precious couples that we miss dearly, willing to sin here because we wanted to see this happen. And Lord, I ask you to bless this church profoundly. I ask you, Lord, to just cause them to love you more. Help them to see that the dross of this world cannot compare with your glory. That they would value you more than anything else. They would love Jesus first and foremost. And you would give them not only the heart, but the skill to go out and make Jesus known. Oh, Father, I long to see thousands upon thousands of people in this area reached with the gospel. Please use these dear saints and encourage them when it's tough, when no one else wants to do it. Remind them your spirit is there. You're empowering them just as you have other faithful people down through the centuries. And, Lord, how I pray for Thomas and Bruce. You will make them steadfast to do this church your way, to lead this church your way, to teach your word faithfully, to make disciples, to model an evangelistic lifestyle that the church family could look at them and be encouraged and inspired to do likewise. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here. Thank you for the example of Paul. May we be more like him. May we follow him as he followed Christ. And may you get all the glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.